0: All right, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Rahim. salamu alaykum. Welcome to day two of Surah Al-A'rath. Um, Alhamdulillah, I'm so excited for another session. Um, this is one of these times I had several things that I wanted to talk about today, and then they sort of evaporated. So I think what today's a good day for is just to ask for prayers. Um, we heard um, on, on, a, on a very sort of sad note is that um, Salman Al-Awdah, Um, who has been languishing in a prison in Saudi, um, was supposed to have a secret trial today. But I just heard, I think, that it might have been postponed. So, you know, every so often we get these reports that they're getting ready to have another secret trial and that they're, you know, that he's gonna be coming up for a death sentence and all of that. So please keep him in your prayers because he's obviously, um, you know, such um, an incredible scholar and i just, I mean, there's so much to say. He's just the epitome of, of who needs to be, you know, here with us, helping us move forward in justice and beauty, um, and not languishing in a prison along with so many others. Um, and of course, um, Abdullah Alaudah is on our board, and you know, he's a dear, um, you know, friend and family, part of the Suli family. So, you know, our, our prayers are with him and his family. And inshallah, um, inshallah, there'll be some some good news at some point. Inshallah. Um, And then I guess we, you know, we have had um, the blessing of having, you know, some visitors come in and out, some close family friends. Um, And it's always really amazing to, um, you know, we're so deep into this project and um, it's, it's very interesting when you have people come and visit. And they're not really that involved in what you're doing, and then they discover what you're doing, and they're completely blown away. So we had, for example, the chance to take people on our library tour, and um, we had one visitor who was so touched because he um, grew up in, or he was, I guess, born in in um, Palestine, um, and you know didn't really he came as a friend of a friend, um, and didn't really know at all what we were doing, but had heard like a recording that the professor. Um, where he was talking about love and was so struck that he asked, you know, our friend, can I please meet the sheikh, because, you know, he was so touched. And when he came, um, and he didn't really know anything about the or anything about what we were doing, um, and he himself had been on his own sort of faith journey, where he was um, really sucked into, like, the life of Glitter and, you know, Zuckrof, as we've talked about, um, and then pulled himself out of that to kind of find his way, and then you know, like, discovered what we were doing here. When we took him on a library tour, um, one of the things that the sheikh showed him was uh, some um, manuscripts um, from Palestine, where you actually could see, like, you know, life that was happening before Israel, and um, the things that that the Palestinians were writing at the time about all the things that they were worried that could happen because, um, you know, things were moving in a direction where, you know, the, the state of Israel was, was, you know, coming to be and now, of course, how many years later, it, it actually did happen, what they were predicting. But to go back and see a piece of that history preserved here in the library was extremely powerful. And I think that at that moment, what, what we also sort of noticed is he was, you know, with us at dinner and kind of just, you know, wondering about, I think, as any Muslim, I think at this time, you know, you sit down with a sheikh, you sit down with someone who presents himself as a religious scholar. You learn, you know, you see students. You have no idea these what are these people learning? What are they talking about? You know, what um, is this just another you know one of these Muslim groups that just likes to hear themselves speak? And then I think from the conversation, the interaction, and seeing the library and seeing this incredible source that touched his heart and reminded him of things from when he was growing up and just his own family journey with, you know, obviously um, with his own family members and seeing like what's happening in Palestine, it, it completely changed him. I mean, from the moment he arrived to the moment he left, he like came as a very, you know, a changed person, which was just striking to me because it's like, you know, we're so deep into what we're doing. And when you meet people who are not, you get a sense of, you know, just how special it is, you know, and, and just how um, important this tradition is that we're trying to preserve. And, um, you know, and people forget, they, they don't realize that we have such an incredibly rich, Sophisticated, nuanced tradition um, that has so much to say to the world. So, inshallah, um, you know, may may Allah, um, you know, help us with this mission. And um, you know, thank you to everyone who has been with us. And um, inshallah, may Allah help us um, continue and, and finish this project and help bring to light the other jewels that are in our history that people don't know even exist and or have forgotten about. And um, so I'm so excited to finish um, the rest of Surah Al-Araf, and um, looking forward to an incredible halaqa.
1: In the name of Allah, the Most Gracious, the Most Merciful. Subhanallah alayhi wasalam. Alhamdulillahi Rabbi alamin. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wa ala alihi wa ashhabihi wa taba'ubaihsani ila yawmin. Lama Shahli Sadri Westerly Omri Wahnul Okdot and Middle Sani of Kaukod. We are continuing in Shalla Surah Al Araf. Um, and I will not, I will, uh, reserve the summary till the end. Um, but Remember that we said that Surah Al-Araf is not not from the late Meccan period, but uh, an unusually long surah from the earlier Meccan period, um, and the title of the surah Al-Araf comes in reference to the ayat that speak about a group of people who in the hereafter seem to be neither here nor there. Uh, They aspire towards heaven, but they can't quite get there, and they fear hell. Uh, but they're not there. So their, their status is a, in somewhat of a limbo. And as we said, that Surah Al Araf then presents a number of narratives similar to Surah Al Qasas, but the narratives in so far, the ones, the narratives we've dealt with, except for the creation narrative, the narrative about Adam and Hawa, um, Adam and Eve, the, the, all the prophets that Surah al Araf speaks about, put in their best effort to guide their people, but ultimately they have to accept that their people will meet their fate a destructive fate um not a good fate after they have done everything that they can um ultimately they the 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 prophets with their small group of followers uh are saved, but Surah al-Araf doesn't tell us exactly the fate of the prophets and their followers after the destruction of their people. So the narrative often just simply tells us they're saved, but doesn't tell us exactly what happened to them after they're saved. Until we come to the story of Moses, and this is the story of, in the Qur'an that is, as I said before several times, that is most parallels um, the narrative about the Prophet, alayhi sallallahu alayhi Two prophets that, Prophet Ibrahim, alayhi and Musa, alayhi are the two prophets who play a number of functions and a number of roles? They are advocates, they are religious leaders, but they are also um, military re- leaders, political leaders, which of course lays the groundwork for the Prophet Muhammad. And we with the Prophet Moses, we said that we've reached the point where Surah Al-Araf the confrontation with the Pharaoh has taken place. The conversion of the Pharaoh's sorcerers, the Pharaoh's aides, uh, has taken place. Surah al-Araf speaks broadly about the the dynamics of Musa leaving Egypt um, and the resistance of the Pharaoh to, uh, and, and the Pharaoh's supporters to letting Musa lead his people and lead his followers out of Egypt. But ultimately it takes place and of course, the famous um, drowning of the Pharaoh and his army. And then we said that <coughs> once the Egyptians leave Egypt and they are um, in the in the desert, Musa salam, goes to the mount to. Um, Convene with Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, and for the, the he said he was going to be gone for thirty days, according to a lot of reports. Uh, but in fact, he is gone for forty days, and the the fact that he didn't come back in thirty apparently uh, made many of his followers anxious, and rumors. Uh, circulate that something must have happened to him, but the most important event is that in his absence, although he left his brother Harun Aaron in charge, that in his absence Surah al-Araf doesn't mention a Samiri, elsewhere in the Quran a Samiri is mentioned, but led by this person called the Samiri, Um, the not all the followers of Moses, but a significant number of the followers of Musa, alayhi salam, go back to a form of idol worship. And we know from from elsewhere in the Quran that they had, um, and I've talked about this before, that they had uh, um, pots and plates and... um, things that they had uh, borrowed from uh, Egyptians when they left, or things that they owned, you know, either, uh, that they, when they left Egypt, and they melted this material and built a, something in the, in the um, shape of a heifer. And it was built in such a way that it made a sound there are a lot of fantastical stories about why the heifer made the sound, but none of, none of it is reliable. And a lot of it is just um, directly the influence of um, biblical narratives. Um, and of course, a or becomes the effective Religious leader overthrowing Harun. And what we know from elsewhere is that Harun, as well in Surah Al Araf, there is some reference to that, is that Harun does his best to try to prevent uh, his people from going back to the worshipping of idols. But the, the reason that Harun is unable to stop that from taking place is because the people who could have supported him failed to do so. Not everyone worshiped the heifer, but there is a whole group of people who although they did not worship the heifer, they did not take an affirmative action to prevent the worshiping of the heifer, to prevent a from misguiding people. And as we'll see, this is rather an important point in Surah al-Araf. So as we said, where we left off last time, is that after Musa is on the mount for 40 days, um, in the tradition and also elsewhere in the Quran, not in Surah Al-A'raf, but in Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alerts Musa that things have gone wrong, that the devil has misguided his people after he left them. And during the, the 40 days on the mount, as is well known, Musa, salam, receives the tablets. Now the tablets, there's a, there's a lot of discussion in the Islamic tradition about whether the tablets were just the Ten Commandments or the tablets were the entire Torah or what does it mean when we say that the tablets had the Torah because the... Torah that exists today is not the Torah that Musa received, the Torah that exists today is what was written by rabbis after the destruction of the first temple and um, the 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 the, the, the loss of the original Torah and the Torah that exists today it it has all the earmarks of being something written in diaspora and not just written in diaspora but something also written under extreme oppression so if you read the Old Testament you can you can easily identify that the people who were writing this were while they recalled some of Musa's teachings, and so you do have little, you know, uh, um, spots of light that reports about what Musa taught and what Musa said and so on, but it's full of um, ancient mythology, um, very fantastical mythology, and even idol worship. And quite often confusing between kings and divinity, which is, again, classic of of the historical period. Um, And also uh, a lot of fantasies about, Israel, the Israelites destroying their oppressors, a lot of um, sometimes quite brutal talk about what the Israelites are going to do to their Israel, to their oppressors once God makes them de- victorious. Anyway, so but. So it's important to, you know, it's either what Musa received on the Mount or the 10 commandments or more likely, in my opinion, he actually received the heart and soul of the Torah, a revelation that was written on these tablets. But he takes the tablets and he returns back to his people And as Surah al-Araf tells us, he is livid. But when he finds that there is a significant number of the Israelites are now led by the Samari, although Surah al-Araf, again, doesn't mention the Samari. Samari is mentioned in Qasas, is mentioned in Al-Baqarah, is mentioned in in several other parts of the Quran. But he is livid that his people have gone back to idol worship And his first confrontation is with his brother, Harun. And as you notice, verse 150, 151 or so, that he grabs his brother's head and he says, you know, how did this happen? Why did you allow these people to, you know, after God saved us, all oh, we went through in Egypt, and after the, the the miracle of parting the the sea and all of that, and, and how could you allow this ha- to happen? And Harun tells them, you know, I I've already, istadafuni, they 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 they've, um, overpowered me effectively they refused to listen to me and I didn't find support and he implores his brother to basically not blame him as um, because that will only shame him further in front of people and may and weaken him and weaken his image and his credibility in front of people okay um and you notice that in in the, in the area that says that and he cast down the tablets this point about casting down the tablets is it's interesting between the biblical narrative and the islamic tradition because it, in the biblical ta- uh, uh, narrative he, he when he throws down the tablets they break and then there is the whole issue of the reconstruction of God's revelation. It's like, okay, the tablets broke. Let's, uh, what is it that God t- t- told you? Um, in the Islamic tradition, as a Razi says, there is no, the, the Quran doesn't make a big deal about it. It's It's, and there is no indication that the tablets broke. And even the Quranic expression uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that he threw them down harshly. He could have just put them down and it would still fit the Quranic expression. Anyway, um, I mean, it's just interesting how much you find written about such a minor point as whether he put down the tablets, he threw the tablets, whether he, the tablets broke, they didn't break. Well, if they broke, then how did they reconstruct it again uh, with literacy being as different as rare as it was and the the tablets were reportedly written miraculously written not by a human being it's not musa who wrote the tablets but divinely inscribed so how could you just simply throw these in anger and break them it, it doesn't it's it's not becoming of a prophet if they're carrying something that were inscribed by god to get angry and just throw them, and, you know, anyway. So, we know from elsewhere that Musa, alayhi salam, burns the heifer and confronts the Samiri, and Araf itself simply moves on with the narrative, because that point is not the significant point of Araf. What is significant for Araf is that Musa chooses 70 representatives. And these 70 representatives are going to go back with Musa to the Mount. Why are they going to go to the Mount? Well, that's a rather significant theological debate. In the Bible, the 70 representatives are rather a rambunctious uh, group. In the Bible, they are they are demanding to see God. They're sort of not believing Mo- Musa, alayhi salam. Uh, they, they say, well, you know, if you saw God, we want to see God, and so on. In the Quran, and in the Quranic tradition, taken as all well. that's the the 70 are of a different um nature this the 70 people are not among those who worship the heifer but they are among those that did although they did not worship the heifer they did not stand up to prevent what was wrong. No one stood with, so if if Musa would have tried to pick someone that actually resisted what was wrong. Now, there is a, a more subtle point here, is the Israelites lived as an oppressed people for a very long time. They suffered as an oppressed people for a very long time. Part of the challenge that Musa salam, was confronting is like the challenge that Muhammad wasalam, confronted with getting the oppressed to rise against their oppression. And when you have people that have been systematically oppressed for a very long time, Getting them to have the spirit to rise, to to actually actively take a stand against what's wrong is very challenging. And this is precisely what Musa was confronted. Is that, well, why didn't you guys support Harun, Aaron, and prevent Isamari from misleading people? They are a people that have learned apathy, that have learned being passive, that have learned being pacifist, that have learned to just say, well, let's mind our own business. And so, of those 70, 70 representatives, they're going to go back to the mount ma- 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 to apologize to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to repent for failing to act. Now, are you starting to see parallels? Remember, who are the people in the Araf? It is those people who are in a limbo, and we learned when we talked about those people in a limbo, they were people who saw... What's wrong? who knew what's wrong or right, but failed to take a stand. Do you see how the connections are made in the surah? In my opinion, it's very obvious. There is no great mystery here. In my opinion, it's obvious. So, those 70 who, if you're reading the surah with your heart and soul and your intellect, is telling you they're basically going to be the Araf and the hereafter unless they change. So they go back to the mount and then there is a debate in the Islamic tradition whether, when they got to the mount and they started repenting whether some of them impolitely asked Musa if they can hear God as well or if they can see God, although there is nothing that reliable in the Islamic tradition because everything that is in Islamic tradition came from the Bible, what is known as the Israelites or Israelites, uh, the Israelite traditions. Uh, these are people basically that you know either read Hebrew or used to be Jewish and converted to Islam. And then they would borrow the biblical narratives and um, transfer them, uh, transplant them into the Islamic tradition. And the, the, all these narratives, there's a huge problem with their chains of transmission. So when you look at the chains of transmission you can usually tell an Ezraite tradition if you just know who the main transmitters in the isnad of an israeli yet were. So certain names, when I see them in the transmission, or any expert would see the, the it would say, "Oh, well, okay, so that's probably an Ezraite tradition." Okay, but that's not the important point. The important point is you look at 155. So now one, one for I'm sorry. One fifty three is talking about the repentance. Oh sorry, um, where are we? Yeah, one fifty five. one okay. uh, fifty five. Um, we then are told. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, let, let me take you because I forgot one thing. It, it's a it, just bear with me because it, it's it's a, a bit of a um if you look at 149 ولما سقط في أيديهم ورأوا أنهم ضلوا 149. And when they wrung their hands and saw they had gone astray, they said, If our Lord does not have mercy upon us and forgive us, we shall surely be among the losers. This is 149. 150 tells you about the return of Musa, that Musa now returns. So, more, the vast majority of Tafasir say, the question is, who is 149 referring to? Yeah, it is people that, they realize things have gone wrong. And, suqqita fi al-dihim, fi al is, is an amazing Quranic expression, that it's like saying, they realized the disaster had just fallen right in their lap. Right? And also, it means that when, when you get extremely worried, you bite on your hand. Anyway, but 149 tells us about a people that noticed that things have gone awry. Then 150 tells us. Musa Aliam returned. So the most of us here tell you well although 149 talks about a people that relies the disaster before Musa comes, most of us here tell you that in fact, the way you should understand this is those who, re, who those who realize the disaster only do so after Musa comes. Did everyone follow that? So although 149 seems to be saying there are a group of people who basically realized the problem before Musa had returned Most nearly all the tafsir tell you no, the way you should understand it is Musa came first and then they realized the problem. I think that's twisting the meaning of the text because if you read it, it says that there are a people that they they. They realized the problem. Then Musa came back. So how can we project backwards? So what does it mean then? Why did the the Mufassirun read it this way? Because they thought that, well, no one among the Israelites repented until Musa came back. But that's not actually true. What they're ignoring, or what they overlook, what the tafasir overlook, is that if you read the tradition carefully, these people who were selected as the 70 who are going to go to the mount, they realize that things have gone wrong. But what the sin that they've committed is that they did nothing to prevent it. And I'm gonna show you later on in the surah more on this. So the problem that and the importance of one forty nine when it tells you khasirin." <speaking> <foreign language> It is talking about a people who realized that things have gone wrong and in fact said, if Allah doesn't have mercy upon us, we're lost. Even before Musa came back. But that's the nature of apathy. The nature of apathy is that you would realize things are really wrong, but you don't have the guts to do anything about it. So, you do what they did, and just say do nothing. You don't support Harun, and you don't. You're not sure what happened to Musa. He's late. He was supposed to come back in thirty days, and now it's been ten days over. And this is a desert. And before the invention of modern technology, and when someone is late in the desert, m- most of the time it means a disaster happened, and he's never going to see them again. You know, they're att- they could be attacked by. Back then, there were more wildlife in the desert than there is now. Uh, you know, they could be attacked by an animal, they could be lo- lost in a, in a storm, they could freeze to death, and the dangers of the desert are endless. But the critical thing is that although the ID Idihim, a very powerful expression, you've realized how did, how wrong things have gone, but you're exactly like the people of the Araf. You, you remain like, well, you know, what can we do? We're just, and you know, we're just a weak bunch. It's all the young people. There isn't the tradition, it says that those who realize things have gone wrong were the older people, and those that worship the heifer were the younger generation. And there is a, not reliable tradition, but a tradition that says that the Older people were afraid that if they confronted the younger the generation, which is, was led by the Samari, uh, that they would be beaten up. That they were not a physical match to the younger, you know, more physically able generation that have, have worshipped the Anyway, okay. So now let's go back to... One fifty five. So when they go to the mount, what Surah al Araf tells us is Falamma a khazatum rush fatu kalu, rob kala, rob be laushiita, a hlaktahum in kabl, wa iye, a tuhlikuna bima falas to faha o minna. So in one fifty five what there, these people are inflicted with what the Quran calls a Rajfa. Now the Rajfa in, in Qur'anic expression and also in, in classical Arabic could be an earthquake or could be a life threatening freeze. We're not sure. There are reports that say it was an earthquake. There are reports that say it was a freeze. There are reports that say it was, was both. But what we all can understand, what's sure, is that once they got there, they were tested physically it was a life-threatening event. And it got very scary. In fact, some traditions and I'm going to say not reliable because again, traditions that borrowed from the biblical narrative said that it's not only that they were threatened their lives were threatened but in fact that they all died. And that they will remain dead for a day and a half and then Allah brought them all back to life. But that's an Israelite tradition and I don't put much credence on it. But, so they when they confront that life, these life-threatening events, Musa, والسلام, supplicates to the Lord that prayer, مننا, is probably, again, one of the most famous in, in, in the in Quranic literature. Allah, will you ruin us? will you destroy us by what the the worst of us did uh, or it could even be you know will you ruin us by what the inequitous among us did will you ruin us or punish us by what the idiots among us did or what the morons among us did now what why is this significant because there's an important theological point here those 70 representatives they're not in good standing with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not because they worshiped the heifer but because they did were not sufficiently affirmative in standing up to what's wrong and the way Allah's anger with them is expressed is through this Rajwa. And look at Musa's supplication how beautifully um, humble it is. fitnataka tudullu biha man wa tahdi biha man tasha. Allah I know that this is a test And I know that this test, you you have every right to test us. And in fact, you have every right to punish whoever and to reward whoever. But we have no one else to turn to but you. So forgive us, and have mercy upon us. And you are the most forgiving. Very different, by the way, from the biblical narrative. Musa's um, humility with his Lord is very different than the biblical narrative. Again, if 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 it was Muslims who were writing their history and writing the, the most scholarly most influential scholarly works about their own theology, um, these points would become common knowledge to everyone. But unfortunately, the most influential works are not written by Muslims, they're written by non-Muslims, as Edward Said used to call them, Orientalists. And um, points like this don't don't get much um, airtime in our modern Islamic epistemology. Okay, so I don't want to belabor the point, but I want to emphasize it so it's clear. The Seventy, because of their apathy, they had to repent for their apathy. And that's the connection to the Araf. And indeed they are tested remember that we are the quran tells us that the rush or the people of salih alayhi salam the Prophet Salih, were destroyed by Rashfa. so when the quran says that a people were punished by irish or were tested by Rashfah, it's a big deal it's not just some um you know, it's not like j- just being in a turbulent sea and praying to God, you know, let the storm be over. Um, okay. By the way, uh, you look at 156, which لَنَا فِي هَذِهِ الدُّنْيَا واكتب لنا في هذه الدنيا حسنا وفي الاخره انا هدنا اليك um, قال عذابي اصيب به من اشاء ورحمتي وسعت كل شيء two things that that prayer in a different form um واتينا في الدنيا حسنة. Here in, in Surah Al Arafah, it says, meaning give us a hasana. Hasana is a reward, reward us. Or give us blessings in this world and in the hereafter. This, is, this was among the favorite du'as of the Prophet. A.s. 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 So if you don't do so already, praying, doing the du'a, Allahumma atini fi dunya hasana wa fil akhirati hasana. Uh, is a beautiful dot second 156 is the zikr for this surah. Uh, Third look at so Allah's response to Musa's prayer alayhi salam is is to it's to affirm that point that my punishment is due to those who deserve it. And I will punish those who deserve it. But كُلَّ شَيْءٍ كُلَّ شَيْءٍ This is a, a, an, another important theological point and I think I mentioned it in passing last halaqah, that my mercy encompasses all. Among Allah's attributes, there are two attributes that are all encompassing, never occasional. Allah's mercy and Allah's knowledge. Allah is always all-knowing, and Allah is always merciful. There's a lot written about this, but in in other words, Allah's mercy is at work all the time and Allah's knowledge is at work all the time. And the world cannot exist in millisecond without Allah's mercy or Allah's knowledge. So, Allah's mercy extends to those who deserve it and those who don't deserve it. And Allah's mercy reaches those who are good and those who are bad. It is Like Allah's knowledge, it is all-pervasive and all-reaching. It's like living on on, an earth. Your body is a certain percentage made of water, no exceptions. It's like, you know, water is just an element in all life. There is so much in Islamic theology written on this, and one of the, uh, it's, da, it's uh, downstairs, uh, there's a, a 12-volume work on Allah's attributes called Asma'ullah Khosnah, Sharh Asma'ullah Khosnah, which um, at least collects a lot of these discussions and puts them in one place. Mm-hmm. Anyway, okay. So let, let's move on. Okay. Now, as b- uh, n- uh, n- prophetic narratives in the Quran, and I've, I've said this before, but I, it's important to 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 remember it. Uh, that remember that prophetic narratives of the Quran are always there to communicate a point about the prophecy of Muhammad والسلام, and about being a Muslim. It is never just a history told for its own sake. And so you find in it, although in 156 we get a the, the Quran takes the message back to the Prophet Muhammad and talks about the relationship of the Torah and the Gospel and the, the, the Old and the New Testament to the prophecy of the Prophet I'm I'm not gonna because it would take us too long if I if I get into why does it say Nabil ummi me and uh, but in, in the, this is uh, one fifty seven one fifty seven. Uh, and what you know, I'd say um, so it, there's a reference to a Nabil which most of the times is translated as the illiterate prophet, but it also can be translated as the communitarian prophet or the the prophet who comes from one of the people. Um, not that I'm challenging that the Prophet ﷺ was illiterate. Uh, some of the revisionist historians these days uh, have tried to prove that the Prophet was literate. I, I don't think there's much credence but, to that. What is important is that we notice a reminder that the S. The essence of the Torah and the Injil, the Old and the New Testament, is an amr maruf, or an an-al-munkar, is advocating or calling or establishing or affirming what is good, and resisting what is not good. And as I said before, the core of moral ethical theory and the core of natural law theory is that simple principle you pursue what's good and you resist what's not good you know wh- whether you read Thomas Aquinas or you read uh, Qadi Abdul-Jabbar it's, it's the same thing um, and that it. Prohibits al-Khaba'is, what is impure, what is immoral. Khabith could be something impure or immoral, or both. Now, this uh, part of verse 157, which is translated as Um, so okay, the, uh, the unlettered prophet, whom they find inscribed in the Quran, the Gospel, that is with them, and who enjoins upon them what is right and forbids uh, to them what is wrong, and makes good things lawful for them and forbids them bad things. This is the study of Quran. The part that I was reading, and relieves them of their burden and shackles and shackles that wear upon them. The, the way that this is usually understood in so many of the translations and tafasir is that Islam came abrogating some of the uh, most restrictive Jewish legal commandments. Now of course while this might be true in the case of Jewish law, that Islam definitely is is less restrictive than Jewish law on a lot of issues, dietary laws, and a lot of other things. Um, it wouldn't necessarily be true about the old, the New Testament, about the Enjir, and it, I. I think that understanding the removal of shackles, the removal of what the Qur'an does, wal as simply the Prophet والسلام, is bringing more liberal laws, is, it actually quite frankly misses the point. Um, what I think it is referring to something that is core to the message of Musa alayhi wasalam, the message of Isa alayhi wasalam, the message of Muhammad alayhi wasalam, and in, in the message of Ibrahim alayhi wasalam, if we even go to the root. And that is the whole point of the whole thrust, the whole trajectory of the divine message is the liberation of the human soul and when, when you take it in the context of Surah al-Araf, then it makes perfect sense why it's telling you this in Surat al-Araf. Because religion is not an opiate of the masses. In fact, religion is the trajectory, is the vehicle, is the mechanism, that will empower the disempower to stand up against their disempowerment. That will empower people to stand up for justice. That will empower people to say, we are not going to accept what's wrong. And that's how I understand وَيَضَعُ عَنُهُمْ إِسْرَهُمْ وَالْأَغْلَالِ it, it, it. and that's consistent with so much of the the tradition of the Prophet Muhammad that Islam is breaking the shackles. But I don't but I think that a study of the the, the trajectory, the moral trajectory of all the monotheistic, all the religions that came from all the the core message of the Prophet Ibrahim, the Prophet Musa, to Isa and so on—it's precisely that. Okay, so we don't have we don't have to go to a third day on surat Al-Araf. We better move on. In passing, uh, l- let me just uh, flag notice. Um, 159 وَمِنْ قَوْمِ مُوسَى أُمَّةٌ يَهْدُونَ بِالْحَقِّ وَبِهِ يَعْدِلُونَ That in this interjection, or or in this, um, it's not really a digression, but it, it, this interlude where the Qur'an interrupts the narrative about the 70 representatives and, and Musa, and brings it back to the, Message of Muhammad alayhi salam, and it's like saying, "Remember, I'm not telling you the story so to entertain you about history. I'm telling you the story so that you reflect about upon what you have at hand, and that is this message that you're receiving, called Islam. Um, typical of Quran, the Quranic moral outlook." is that it will always, whenever it it is talking about how, it, 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 it could talk about a past nation that has been destroyed. And then it just tells you that it's been destroyed. But if it talks about a nation in the past that continues to exist, and it talks about their moral failure, it will invariably remind you that the picture of moral failure is never absolute. It will always remind you that yes, there is this moral failure, but remember, don't start effectively, don't become an extremist, don't make generalizations because there are also very good people which is something that in, 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 in the use of in the epistemological systems of the world didn't, in, didn't enter human discourse until the 20th century. I mean, that way of saying don't generalize even up to World War II, I know that you would think, oh, it's no big uh, What, what, this is a big deal? Absolutely. You you don't realize how the human mind through history, the concept of someone saying, don't generalize, qualify what you say, is something that like like scientific in- in inventions, something that didn't enter human language till very, very, very recently. People spoke, people felt throughout human history, felt entitled to make generalizations. And no one thought, not the Greeks, not the Romans, not the Byzantines, no no one thought of saying, well, it's generalization is inaccurate because actually the systems of knowledge that used to exist said that as long as there is a general trend, then the exceptions are not worth mentioning. The exception to a rule are not once mentioned. And this, by the way, affected the way that Roman law was written, for instance, or that old legal systems were written. It took human development a lot for us to say, when you write a law, it's very important that you remember the exceptions. It took human development a lot to get to the point of saying, where you know generalizations are dangerous it's it so the fact that the quran does this should you should pay attention to that because you're seeing something that is again if it was muslims who wrote the systems of knowledge this would have received the attention it deserves. In in, um, but because again, Muslims are are not the ones who control the 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 sciences that flow about their own tradition. Um, so when it when it just interjects and says, "Well, that the, no, from the ones who follow Musa." Now, of course, because the commentators on the Qur'an were often not as advanced as the Qur'an, so a lot of the commentators looked at this and said, well, it's saying that at the time of Moses, there were some of the followers of Moses who, um, people who pursued the truth and pursued justice, but it can't apply to later generations. And of course, they're wrong. The, the Quran is clear. Okay. So then we go back to the narrative of Musa a.s. A.s., again. And it tells us that, and we'll deal with this inshallah, the, the, the 12 tribes um of the breaking in in, in um, because it comes up again in surah al-baqarah or it comes up in 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 a in a more direct way but there are the the followers of musa alayhi are divided into 12 um, I, uh, I don't want to say tribes. Um, twelve groups, let's just say. And there is a quick reference to the Ayun Musa or the 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 uh, another miracle where there are twelve springs of water that sprout in the desert and that. Each of the, uh, each of them have their own um, water source. Uh, these, these 12 springs still exist till today, but in an abysmal neglected state, unfortunately. I think that the last time I, I was there, I don't know how it is now, but because it was uh, uh, some time ago, um the, um the there was like one of the wells or one or two that were dug up and and cleaned from all the trash and all the dust and all the and made into a tourist attraction and the rest were neglected i, I don't know if it's like that but it's sort of it's they're not they don't have they they're no longer um uh, there's no water in them but you could see the the where they were the, the actual holes. Well, when I when I visited, um, this was many years ago. I don't remember how long ago. But there there were a bunch of uh, there were all these evangelical groups of Christians who were literally camped next to uh, the holes and singing biblical songs the whole time. They were like holding hands and swaying and singing. Um, okay, so this one. Okay, so now we get, so 161. What time is it? Okay, 161. And when it was said unto them, Settle in this town and eat of that which is therein, wheresoever you will, and say, and enter the gate prostrating that we may forgive your iniquities. Kulu منها Haitu شئتم Wakulu Hitotum, Wakulu Baba Sujadan نغفر لكم Hadi Otkum Sanazidu Mohsin. So we know that this is the point that the Ezra like tribes will enter Palestine. But for one sixty one, notice. That when it says, it doesn't tell us what this is, what that village is. But the other thing that is worth noting is that if you go back and you study all the Quranic pronouncements about the Israelites entering Palestine, one sharp contrast you will find between the biblical narrative and the Quranic narrative, is that in the biblical narrative, and as we said, that it was after the loss of the Torah, after the destruction of the first temple, the rabbis in diaspora, wrote what the the Torah that we have today, and so the way it was written, it is full of claims of a promised land and full of justifications for, as in Deuteronomy, for instance, um, of unmitigated violence against the inhabitants of the, the already existing inhabitants of Palestine. The Quranic narrative is very different. The Quranic narrative is never go to Palestine, kill its inhabitants, or throw out its inhabitants, and take over their homes. The Quranic narrative is literally just settle there. And as Razi says, for instance, it is literally and share the land with the people that live there. and I don't remember who it was, I think it was in Bhagawi, who says that I think I don't I I don't remember. Who said that and of course if you are invited to, to to go live somewhere where people already live, immediately it is understood that you must follow all the good manners of being a guest upon people that are already living there. So, in other words, Adam al as he put, as, uh, that um, that you know, you 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 have to. You can't just steal land, you can't steal property, that in other words, that nothing changes the nature of the moral order. Um I would surprisingly, I've never seen a modern scholar point out to this really obvious point that the the Quran Took an oppressed people and said, "Settle there." But it doesn't say anything about, and in fact, and if you if you is it say منها حيث شئتم and قلوا um The study Quran translates it as what well and say or remove the burden. Um حطة, I, I would translate it and and express gratitude. Because al-hatta is to, um, it could mean and remove our burdens, it could mean and remove our sins, or it could mean and be properly grateful. And I think if you look at the context properly, grateful makes the the the, the more sense to me. Okay, what and and Now there is a. I I I'm not going to say anything about its reliability because I don't know, but um, the there is a, a tradition that said that as people settled in Palestine that Musa salam, would tell them say hittah again as we said be, and that's part of the reason I believe it's, it means be properly grateful and that those who had started to once they've enjoyed several life, had started to deviate from the path again, started to rebel against Musa, would instead, instead of saying Hatta would say Hinta. They sound like the same as the only difference is the, the Nun. And they would say Hinta to mock um, the command to say Hitta. And Hinta means um, um it, I mean, it, it's a food stop, substance, so it doesn't mean anything. It actually means, um, uh, one of its meanings is, what, what do you call that thing you put on your... Uh, huh? Gloves? Like, what you used to dye your hands with. Uh, hanna. Hanna, hanna. Okay. Okay. So... After the Israelites settle, and their lifestyles becoming regular and consistent again, like a lot of oppressed people and apathetic people, living by a um, by a a lot of the the habits of corruption and lack of truth and um uh... uh, uh it starts seeping in again for better than that you know a lot of women will call a lot for some money so and in the interest of time is that there is a significant drift back to disobedience, lack of gratitude, and immorality. In Surat al-Araf, Surat al-Araf focuses upon one example, and that is the law of the Sabbath. And it tells us something very interesting. that it it doesn't tell us which village, but it is as if the demonstrative example of a larger problem. First it says, that, that those who were inequitous and unjust started changing. And God had given the Ezrealites, the law of the Sabbath, meaning that they are not supposed to work on the Sabbath and they're not supposed to hunt or fish. Uh, there are tra- traditions that you'll often encounter that tell you that part of their infraction is that God told them the Sabbath is on Friday, but they didn't want Friday, they wanted Saturday, but none of these traditions are unreliable and don't, don't put any weight on them don't rely on them um the 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 sabbath was Saturday and they're not supposed to hunt or fish on Saturday that's part of the jewish law that they were given but what this village started noticing and again, the, the allegory here is, is important, is that it looked like it would be very gainful fishing if they fished on Saturday. Now, you can understand it as a test from God that God would actually make the fish, you know, jump out of the water on Saturdays, or you could understand it as something that they convinced themselves of, who knows. But the point is, is that they started saying, well, you know, how can we let this economic opportunity be lost? How can we forgo this opportunity to make some really good money? And so they started fishing on Saturdays. And when they did so, they put financial gain ahead of religious law. The moral of this lesson because Surah al-Araf is full of moral lessons. Remember what we've encountered before the lesson against political opportunism. Just because something is going to make you more money or something is going to be put you at an, advanti- at an advantage politically, it doesn't mean you have the right to say to the laws of your faith and ethics of your religion that they don't matter, or we can we can claim an exception because it would be um, it would be to our advantage to do so. If this is taken as an example. And I wouldn't understand it literally as the only infraction, because then, because the the uh, the Quran talks about many infractions, but the core of the infraction is being, as Surat al Araf itself will tell us in a second, is that sense of entitlement that when. Um, A people who have been suppressed for a very long time, and suddenly they are running their own affairs. Um, You find often, as you often find with, for instance, people who become rich very quickly, a sense of entitlement, uh, a sense of taking things for granted too quickly, um... We also noticed this was Muslim countries that had been colonized for a very long time and became uh, independent. Um, immediately when they were in charge of their own affairs, what what prevailed was corruption and um, in not a good civic code of conduct that allows people to manage their affairs ethically, but rather a moral confusion and opportunism and so on. And in, in the modern age, we know enough from the field of sociology to know why that happens. Anyway, so look at 166. Let's see how they translate when they were insolent concerning that which they had been forbidden, we said unto them, "Be apes outcast." So, unfortunately, you there are a lot of modern Muslims and some pre-modern Muslims that believe that God punished those. Offending Israelites by transforming them into apes. Um, both in terms of chains of transmission, that's not you can't put any weight on that. But, but there is another point. I mean Razi makes this point rather well and his discussion on this verse that this was a figure of speech as to in the same way when i say you're a donkey or you're a dog it doesn't mean that i'm saying you're actually a donkey or a dog when i say or What it meant is that they became, from a moral perspective, exactly like apes living for their simple passions and desires without reason or principles. So, in other words, especially that expression, it's used to describe people in classical Arabic, people who live for simple appetites and who live to satisfy their appetites but have nothing beyond their base appetites the, uh, there are. I mean, if you, uh, although in our modern day, it's probably be considered an, uh, like calling them a name if you call someone an an erd, or uh, erd is modern uh, uh, colloquial Arabic, a Kurd, um, but. Yeah, it is an insult. I mean, it's an insult, but it is a a description of their what morally they've become like. People who live for their simple appetites, and but there was no one was you know uh, 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 you know as if sorcery turned into an into an ape and jumping around and. that's that's not justified and of course we it is not all the followers of Moses <clears throat> <clears throat> um not all the followers of Moses or not all the israelites but it was those the description of Kunu Qirdat al a description that applies to those who deviated from the path, people who seem to be living for their appetites and not any principles. Okay. And then, if you look at 167, 168, that. The Qur'an comments on the state of diaspora that eventually, at the time the Qur'an is revealed, is the state that Jews existed, is that they become dispersed throughout the land after the destruction of the First and the Second Temple. Um, Because the Bible says the same thing about... The diaspora and why the diaspora. Till today, there is a a a, a, um, a school or a sect in Judaism that opposes, for instance, the establishment of the state of Israel, because they see this as a direct contradiction to what the Bible says. The the the. The return of Jews to Palestine is not supposed to take place until certain historical precedents take place that haven't taken taken place. So that that element um, of was it a promise that? Um, that Jews would be in a state of diaspora forever? <coughs> I don't. It, 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 what it says is <coughs> meaning that they will be dispersed in the lands. Diaspora is a loaded term because it, it assumes a dispersion from one particular area. Um, But any time a people become defeated, their civilization crumbles, they disperse. Look at Muslims today. Uh, Why is it that so many Muslims don't live in the countries of origin? It's it's precisely because of the crumbling of their civilization. All the, the exit from Iran, Afghanistan, Egypt, India, Pakistan, all the Muslims that flux out. Uh, it's precisely could be described as Qatana Humphil Ard as well. Okay, but note 168, because this is again typical of Quranic style, although. Again, reminding you, <coughs> So that qualifying spirit. That although they have been divided, as the study Quran says, divided into communities on in the, on earth. Qattara, I would say, dispersed communities. But, some of them are righteous, and some are not. Stating the obvious qualifier, in other words, resisting the temptation to generalize, is is, um, is something you take for granted, because you're born in the modern age. But it is a, it is an epistemological and moral revolution. Um, and notice, and we as a Razi says that the Quran was all people that continue to exist consistently will remind you that God continues to test people with good and bad, with the the door for salvation or the door for being saved or the door for returning or, and God's acceptance always open. So even when the Quran talks about the Israelites, that door remains open <clears throat> okay then we come to 169 i don't mean to go verse by verse but I'm, I'm i'm i can't skip any of these verses so i'm forced to deal with them uh but as we get As we, when we get done with the story of the Israelites, we will be able to skip quite a few verses. 169. So, what is the problem with later generations? Or one of the problems, and remember, the Quran, whenever it tells us about a problem, With a past people, it is telling us to teach us something. It is not telling us to tell us they're good or bad. That's not the point. The point is what you learn from their experience. So we learn from this experience, we've learned something about God's law, taking liberties with God's law for political or financial gain. We've learned something about that even if you're lost, even if you are condemned, the doors of salvation are always open. We've learned something about what happens if you don't have God's support and God's mercy that you can become scattered and dispersed and lost as we are today unfortunately we now learn something very another lesson that's very (coughs) important that later generations فَخَلَفَ مِنْ بَعْدِهِمْ خَلَفٌ وَرِثُوا الْكِتَابَ يَأْخُذُونَ عَرَدَ هَذَا الْأَدْنَى وَيَقُولُونَ سَيُغْفَرُ لَنَا وَإِن يَأْتِهِمْ عَرَضٌ مِثْلُهُ يَأْخُذُوهُ أَلَمْ يُؤْخَذْ عَلَيْهِمْ الْمِيثَاقُ الْكِتَابِ أَنْ لَا يَقُولُ عَلَى اللَّهِ إِلَّا الْحَقِّ وَدَرَسُوا مَا فِيهِ وَالْدَارُ الْآخِرَةُ خَيْرٌ لِلَّذِينَ يَتَّقُونَ أَفَلَا يَعْقُلُونَ So problem with later generations is that they would take a kitab, a kitab, the book, which means a revelation, which means God's law, which means the entire could even mean the entire tradition, and they they would take the the. Um, They would take, uh, the uh, study Qur'an says the ephemalities of this lower, they grasp the ephemalities of the lower world. Uh, uh, that's one way to understand it, but <coughs> is that they would take what, the, the least that the, you can take. In other words, it's like watering down God's law and watering down the divine will and watering down the the imperative of the revelation to the least demanding that it could be. And then they say, well, it's okay, because God will forgive us. <laughs> Taking God for granted. Saying, well, it's no big deal. God will forgive us. Oh, God is not going to punish us for this. God is not going to punish us for that. And then, Allah describes this, describes this as two things. One is that it is a violation of the covenant through the book whenever you receive a revelation, there is a covenant between you and Allah. <coughs> but two, that this is a form of lying about God because you are projecting onto God something that comes fundamentally It comes from your ego and your self-interest. And what you're projecting unto God is that, well, God will, will, will not care. God doesn't care. God will forgive. But again, yet again, the Quran reminds you, lest you become taken by generalizations, والذين يمسكون بالكتاب وأقاموا الصلاة إن لا it reminds you again that qualifier but those who faithfully follow the book and establish prayer we don't waste the reward it it, it is it just amazing that it's like the 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 Quran Re, it's like the Quran refuses to make you simple-minded. It is constantly demanding <clears throat> that your thinking be layered, that your moral thinking be layered. In 171, <clears throat> let's see how to study Quran Translate this one. Well, it just says, and we lifted the mountain above them as if it was a canopy. (coughs) Okay, Uh, 171, there is an interesting debate in the Islamic tradition uh, because the Quran says, and we lifted the mountain above them as if it was a canopy. And some, there is a, those who said (coughs) that although we are not sure what group of Israelites confronted that test, that they were tested by seeing a mountain lifted and they thought this mountain was being lifted to crush them as punishment for their their inequities. Um, The problem with these traditions is that other than the isnad problems, because a lot, I mean, nearly all of these traditions that say that are marfu'a. Anyway, uh, let's not spend time. But uh, that there, we don't know where, when, how. You know, if something like that, that actually a mountain was lifted to hang above people. Well, that's pretty. That's pretty amazing. I mean, that's even more amazing than parting the Red Sea, if it happened. So, the second school of thought, which I think is far more reasonable, the, lifted the mountain above them, basically it refers to, the the point is not where, how, it's simply referring to that for some Israelites, the test that they confronted was the quaking of mountains in Sina that were going to crumble upon them. And I think that tafsir is much more reasonable. Um, And that for some, as they saw this calamity, it's again the Quran reminding us of something that it will address, even in 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 the verses that follow right after, that when human beings they stray, they 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 get take a lot for granted, they take shortcuts with God's law, they take shortcuts with God's morality and God's ethics, and the minute God afflicts them with hardship they go through best behavior period and what makes sense in this tafsir is exactly the ayah that follows it وَإِذَا أَخَذَ رَبُّكَ مِنْ بَنِي آدَم مِنْ ذُهُورِهِمْ ذُرِّيَّتَهُمْ وَأَشْهَرَهُمْ عَلَىٰ أَنفُسِهِمْ أَلَسْتُ بِرَبِّكُمْ قَالُوا بَلَىٰ شَهِدْنَا عَنْ تَقُولُ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ Inna Kunna and a the Um Okay. But actually, um, um, let let me explain to you why I said what 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 makes sense what follows um, in a little bit. So just keep that in mind. I will come back to this point. But so then Surat al-Araf will leave the Israelites, and it will take us more to back again to an, a sort of a, a larger outlook, like as if it's zooming back outwards, or what is that expression, zooming out? Yeah. Um, and starts talking about as if to to underscore. I am telling you about the Israelites, so you understand something about yourself and about humanity and about. The point of this message that human beings, the dynamic is that there, like what happened with the Israelites, there is an implied covenant a what is called pre-temporal covenant, covenant, a primordial covenant that, that goes back from the moment of creation. And that covenant is the bond between you and your Lord. That although you exist on this earth, you cannot surrender to the materialism of this earth. As the Quran will, will call it in a, in a second, <inaudible> but we'll get there. And that you will always confront a problem no 173. Ever to glorify him Will you destroy us for that which the falsifiers have done? al is not necessarily falsifiers. the muftilun is people who Um, stubbornly or stupidly go array. It comes from the word bottle. Bottle is something that's wrong. And Muqtulun are consistent wrongdoers. Now, of course, this, this expression, are you going to destroy us by what those who are wrongdoers have done reminds you of what? the prayer of Musa, alayhi salam, when he goes with the 70 representatives and they m- confront a severe test and he says, are you going to punish us by what the stray among us have done? So, you start getting even it, the picture starts becoming clearer and clearer that you are confronting this dynamic of consistent dynamic of what are, if I would put it simply, what are the if if you are in a ship, as the Prophet ﷺ said in one of the hadith, that if you are in a ship and you are Riders on the ship, but there are people on the ship who are going to sink the ship. What are you going to do? This, of course, heart reminds us immediately of the people on the Araf. It reminds us immediately of the 70 representatives. It reminds us immediately of the confrontation between Moses and his brother. It reminds us immediately of that that challenge. People are going to need God. And then when people turn to God and you say things are going really wrong because there are people who are leading us to the wrong in the wrong direction. But that supplication, God, are we all going to suffer because of what the evil among us did? God, are we going to suffer because of what the unjust among us did? God, are we going to suffer because of what the ignorant among us did? That begs the question, as we'll come in a second, well, what have you done about the unjust, the ignorant, the evil among you? So, look at what 175, and again, I, I really don't mean to go verse by verse, but um, I don't want to cheat you in, either. And recite unto them the account of the one to whom we gave our signs, but he cast them off. So Satan made him his follower, and he became one of the deviant. 175. You might think, why am I pausing? This sounds like it's pretty straightforward. There, uh, just to tell you that in the Islamic tradition there is a big debate um, as to who this person is, and I'm I'm not going to go into this debate. I'm just just flagging the you know things that you should know about. Or um, there is a big debate. Why is there a big debate about this uh, this person? Well. It is reported that that this person was among the descendants from the early Israelites, and that this person knew what is uh, is known as Isma'illah al-Azam, Allah's great secret name. Allah's secret name in the Jewish tradition is a very big deal. Some Muslims think it's a very big deal in the Islamic tradition, but it's not. But it's a very big deal in the Jewish tradition. And that this man, knowing God's grand and secret name, which he attained through great piety, he leveraged an enormous amount of power. But that came with that knowledge. When he leveraged a great amount of power, shaitan was able to get to him. And slowly by slowly, he started abusing that power. And he went from a person who was the epitome of piety, so pious that Allah revealed Allah's grand and secret name to him, to a disgusting, corrupt, unjust human being who made all types of excuses to oppress and abuse people. Um, If you were a student uh, in a a, a good seminary, Islamic seminary, or if you were a student of Sufism, you would spend a lot of time talking about the story and um, the lessons from it and... Um, I mean, it is, a, especially in the Sufi tradition, it's a very powerful story and, and a, a, a very strong warning about how you are at your most vulnerable when you are at your highest success, when everything is going your way and you're becoming popular and everything is working for you. That's the most dangerous point. Okay. Now 176 probably one of the most famous verses of the Quran and something that we we deserves that we talk about a bit. نورس ولو شئنا لرفعناه بها ولكنه أخلد إلى الأرض والتبع هواه فمثله كمثل الكلب إن تحمل عليه يلهث of so it takes you to this rather vague reference to what it doesn't tell it say it explicitly but we we you know, whether it is in fact this, this man who got to know God's secret name or whether it's talking about just simply a human beings when shaitan manages to get to them and turn them into unconscious followers of shaitan. But it is cutting to the chase and it's telling you what the problem is. What the problem is. What is the problem? أَخْلَدَ إِلَى الْأَرْضِ She's an amazing expression. Let's see how the study Quran um, translates. I was going to say, I was going to say, let's see how the study Quran translates it and I'm going to be disappointed and I in fact was. Okay, the study Quran says an inclined towards Earth. No, (laughs) أَخْلَدَ إِلَى الْأَرْضِ is not inclined towards Earth. أَخْلَدَ Al Ard is someone who has okay, the, the best way that I can put it is someone who has become marred and stuck in materialism. You can't and أَخْلَدَ إِلَى الْأَرْضِ it's not that you you don't know what's wrong and right you know what's wrong and right but all your decisions all your decision-making processes are, are highly <clears throat> materialistic. It's about what I get and what I lose. Not about principles, not about ethics, not about belief, not about <clears> the <throat> just. Ultimately, and because of that, you and Shaitan are meant for each other. You could have, you could know all the right things. You could even pray and fast and do all of it. But if ultimately you don't know how to put principle ahead of material gain to say, yes, I want this. Yes, I desire this. Yes, I long for this, but it's wrong. So I'm not going to do it. Then... It doesn't matter if you know Allah's grand name. Your shaitan is wedded to you. And that expression, an idiot, former student of mine, idiot, um, wrote, he got it published but you know of course you can in in orientalism you can get any garbage published uh, I mean when he put he wrote it in a paper I I I I told him I'm gonna duck him an entire grade uh, if I see it in his paper again and then he put it back again when he's got the thing published moron anyway what he said was that the Quranic expression uh, that it's like dogs, if you chase them, they pant, and if you don't chase them, they pant, is an expression of how much the Quran hates dogs. It, it's, it's it's just... Ugh. Okay, so what is it saying? It's not talking about... It's not telling you go chase a dog and make it pant. Staghfirullah. That would be haram. Uh, It's saying that a dog the, the panting of a dog is an involuntary innate thing, a biological thing. It is not a thinking thing. If you pant, it could possibly be because of voluntary decisions that you make. So you decide to run, so you breathe heavily. You decide to exercise, you breathe heavily. Someone scares you, you breathe heavily. But for a dog, that's part of the physiology of a dog. And a dog, as a result, is panting because that's the way a dog is. But has here has a, a another meaning, is that when, when a dog pants, dog is breathing, when you use that same expression for a human being, it means you are coveting. An insanul is a human being that goes like, yeah, give me, give me, that's a lath. A dog pants just sitting. A human being, his lath is, so that person who's akhlada fil ard, the materialistic person, is living panting like a dog. It has nothing to do with putting down dogs. Is living, painting like a dog, meaning they are constantly, oh, what's the latest? What, okay, what's the latest fashion? What's the latest car? What's the latest wind? Oh, what's the latest food? Oh, you know, oh, the state's going. It's exactly that. It's a very powerful image for someone who has become completely dominated by materialism. In fact, I can't imagine a stronger image okay and it wraps it up for you by saying faqsus qasas faqsus qasas I am telling you narratives I am telling you stories so that you may reflect do you see how the Araf takes you all to that point it's like this is not so you will like or not like the Israelites this is not so that you will can brag about your knowledge about Salih Alayhi or Nuh Alayhi salam. this is not about any, it is for you to reflect all of this is for you to understand through what I am communicating to you this image of a person who lives for their mere appetites like a panting dog is further affirmed in one seventy nine that when Allah subhanahu wa taala simply says that there are those that in fact live without comprehension, without principles. They have eyes they don't see. They have ears they don't hear they have hearts they don't understand meaning that they're without comprehension and without principles are like cattle that they are even more misguided because at least cattle will only eat when it's hungry and cattle has an instinctive reaction that it fulfills but human beings Having willpower and having volition, when they live only through their appetites, there are, in fact, have degraded themselves or become more base than cattle. And then 180 takes us to Asma ul-Husna. That Wallahi al-Asma ul-Husna Asma'Allah Allah husna are Allah's what we commonly translate as Allah's beautiful names, Allah's attributes, the attributes of beauty. Um and the the rest of the verse tells you that those and this is an important expression say, turn away, leave, leave, distance yourself from those who the study Qur'an translates it, I guess as, well, let's see, from, from those who uh, deviate with regard to his names. No. Uh, you could believe in God, but still commit the sin of ilhad fi Because although you believe in God, you either do not take seriously, or do not believe in, or do not understand what God's attributes mean for you. So, God's attributes mean الله, that, that you internalize Allah's beauty and you reflect Allah's beauty. If you believe in God, but what you reflect outward is ugliness, you, you, you have no sense of mercy, you have no sense of compassion, you have no sense of justice, you have no care for knowledge. You don't value knowledge. That's al <coughs> bi-asma'illah. Now, take this even a step further <coughs> and living like the Israelites or like the people of Araf, living apathetically about God's normative demands, being apathetic, neutral, not doing what's right, not in calling for what is good and al Mumka, not calling for what is good or resisting what is evil, is il had. And that's the connection. That so now the surah is reaching its conclusion and is saying. Okay, understand that your Lord, the the nature of your Lord, the very attributes of your Lord, exist normatively for you. And if you do not understand the normative impact of what your Lord is, then in fact you are, tul'hudu asma illa. And the other thing I want to mention is that it is very commonly um, known among modern Muslims that Allah has 99 names. Um, This goes back to a a famous hadith. Um, But what a lot of modern Muslims do not know that that's highly debated in the Islamic tradition. Whether Allah, the Razi says Allah has far more than 99 names. Ibn Arabi says he counted as many as a thousand. Um, The dogma by which modern Muslims take the issue of the 99 names of God is dangerous. And especially when I hear people repeat the weak hadith that whoever knows Allah's hundredth name is gets an automatic ticket to to paradise, um, that's nonsense as well. Um, so just beware. Okay. And then 181 Wamimman Halakna Ummatun Yahduna Bilhak Wabihi Yaadilul Walla Dina Kazabu Bia Tina Sanas Tadrijuhum in Hay Sulaya 181 is the, the equivalent of an omrable maru for Nahira Mukar. So Wamimman Halakna Ummatun the f there are it's like saying there ought to be by 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 stating it in the affirmative present sense, It, it has a normative connotation. That بالحق, they adhere, are guided and guide others with truth. It's not truth leads to justice. It is an an intimate, inherent relationship that so many modern Muslims overlook. To to say there is I have the truth of Islam, but there is no justice is meaningless. Okay. Now we are in a position to skip a few ayat so we can finish on time. Um, okay, no rushing, huh? Don't rush. Oh, don't rush. Okay, so after 181, Surah al Araf then takes you back to the imperative of reflecting upon creation. Um, the only thing I, I'll just quickly say about reflecting upon creation is that the, the crux of the heart of of the reflection upon creation is to reflect upon the principle of causation. Every created thing, every material thing in our existence—the very logic, that the only logic that we know of, in material created visible things, including the star, the moon, the, the, the anything that we can measure—is that it must have it must have come from something. It's a created thing means it was created. When we get to things that we cannot measure, things that we cannot materially assess, then we don't know what logic applies. So, to see anything in the universe and to assume that it just existed without a creator is illogical. But when we deal with that with the immeasurable, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you can't apply that logic. We don't know what logic applies. Anyway. Okay. And then so then it takes us brings us closer to the issue of as the Quran often does when it ever talks about create, creation it always talks about the end of creation and in surah al-a'raf it comes back and again it's it, this the 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 emphasis especially in the early uh, meccan surah where it consistently says to the Meccans that not even the prophet knows when the final hour is. And that um, that, that it's as if saying um, and he has no authority to know where it is. Um <coughs> this consistent defining of the prophets, the parameters of the prophet's authority, um, is obviously very significant for the whole development of the Islamic faith. And notice, (laughs) It will only come to you as a surprise, and there's even uh, some traditions that the the that say that the Prophet after Surah Al-Araf, was ordered not to discuss the timing or the coming of the hereafter. Um, th- this then poses a problem as to the traditions that often exist that talk about what's going to happen before the coming of the hereafter. Uh, And in Hadith literature, there are a lot of discussion about this, um, whether this contradicts the Quranic command or not, and so on. Okay. Then let's go to 189. So, هو الذي خلقكم من نفس واحدة وجعل منها زوجها ليسكن إليها فلما تغشاها حملت حملا خفيفا فمرت به فلما أثقلت دعوا الله ربهما لئن آتيتنا صالحا لنكونن من الشاكرين فلما آتاهما صالحا جعل له شركاء فيما آتاهما فتعالى الله عما يشركون This is 189 and 190 the discussion here, the verses, let's look You created you from a single soul and made its mate so that you might find repose and tranquility um, with. And then notice it says and then when he covered, when when uh, am means when they copulated. Covered her means Gashah means it's another it's an idiomatic expression for copulation. Like Nikah. Um, okay, let me just explain it because I, I don't anyway. So it starts out by saying that created a soul and created a mate and created tranquility and repose between mates. But then it says, it seems to be talking, it it (laughs) refers to he and she. And there is a debate in the tradition about this. So what is it talking about? It's saying that when they copulated she became pregnant and first she didn't know she was pregnant but then as her stomach started growing and she realized now she became fully aware that she's pregnant they started praying to the Lord saying Allah please give us Salih means give us a healthy, a healthy, pious. It's Salih could be either pious or could be healthy or could be both. Uh, so give us a child who is in, in well. But when Allah, in fact, gave them the child that they wanted, 190 seems to say that then they they associated partners with God. Meaning, at at the very least, it connotes that there is a lack of gratitude or a lack of thankfulness for Allah, for the healthy baby. So who is it talking about here? Well, one school of thought said that it is talking about Adam and Hawa, that it came back to Adam and Hawa. And this is a, a, I don't know if if you guys have know of the story or not, but that reportedly when um, Hawa becomes pregnant, shaitan, Approaches Adam and Hawa and says, "Call your child Abd, Abd Harth." And Harth is one of Shaitan's names. So Shaitan was effectively saying, "Call your child the uh, the, the slave of it, of Shaitan." And uh, Shaitan tricked tricked them in calling their child al Harth. And so there are, in the tradition, those who say that it's referring to this narrative that when Hawa became pregnant, they were praying to God to give them a healthy child. When they were given a healthy child, the sin that was committed is that they called the child al Harth. But as so many theologians know, that doesn't really make a lot of sense for several reasons. Well, if they, if the Shaitan tricked them in calling their child Abd Harth, but they didn't know what Harth meant, and they didn't know that they were calling their child the son of Shaitan, so there's no sin. So what's the sin? Second. And let's assume there was a sin. Well, according to the m- most traditions, Adam was a prophet. At least that's the school thought of thought of so many theologians. That Adam was a prophet. So but how could Adam and Hawa then associate partners with God? Some try to solve this problem in a typically sexist and patriarchal way. And that said, well, it wasn't Adam's sin. It was just Eve's sin. It was Hawa that was tricked by Shaitan and it was Hawa that started deviating while Adam remained as a prophet, steadfast. But if you notice, look at the Quran, or uh, uh, I'm sorry, those who know Arabic at least, what it says is, Falamma atahuma to both of them, صَالِحَا Lahu Both of them committed the sin. جعل. So blaming Eve exclusively for the sin contradicts the the literal Quran. That that's why I say it's typically sexist and patriarchal, because it's you know you are even ignoring the clear language of the Quran to now so this takes us to a second school the second school says no this has nothing to do with adam and hawa this is pointing you pointing to in the same way that we started with the the very narrative of creation allah is taking you back to the core relationship that the, the the most sanctified and the most um, critical relationship that allows for procreation and the continuation of the human race. And that is the coming of these partners as second for each other, tranquility and repose. And that although people become pregnant and give birth all the time. Note that very act of birth that takes place all the time all over the world is through Allah's direct direct mercy that if we only understood what giving birth is, that would be enough for us to be thoroughly grateful to Allah. But as often happens, <coughs> and it does happen quite often when people are pregnant, if, if they're at least, you know, not psychos, uh, they'll get closer to God and have all types of wishes. But once they have the child, well, it's modern science, well, you know, it's whatever, it's all, all everything else that gave birth, that allowed for this birth to take place. But God quickly becomes minimized out of the relationship and out of the dynamic. Surat al-Araf, then, Segues into the particular Meccan context, talking about the worshiping of idols and the associating, the the taking of idols will avail you nothing, as you head to meet with Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. And warning the Prophet والسلام, mm-hmm. as we saw repeatedly in the Qur'an, in verse 198, وَإِن إِلَى الْهُدَى لَا يَنْظُرُونَ That they don't hear you, and they even look at you, and they don't see you. That constant reminder to the Prophet. That we know you're doing the best you can, but you can't help it. They are what what they are. They're exercising their free will free will to to ignore you. Then one ninety nine and one twenty. So, what do you? what do you take from all of this khudh al afwa wa'mur bil 'urfah 199 191 and 199 and 200 khudh al afwa wa'mur bil 'urf wa'rid 'an al jahilin وَإِمَّا يَنْزَغَنَّكَ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ نَزْغٌ فَاسْتَعِذْ بِاللَّهِ إِنَّهُ سَمِيعٌ عَلِيمٌ And then 201 إِنَّ الَّذِينَ اتَّقُوا إِذَا مَسَّهُمْ تَائِفٌ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ تَذَكَّرُوا فَإِذَا هُم مُبْصِرُونَ So your attitude your moral stance is khuzil and I'll, I'll say, say more about khuzil afwa in a second. Adhere to forgiveness. Wa'mur bil And command, pursue. And forgive doesn't mean abandon goodness, pursue goodness. In fact, u'mur command it. And turn away from the ignorant. Remember that you are what you keep company with. If your life is full of ignorant companions, so will be you. If companionship has We are social human beings. We are social animals. You know, when one of our dogs starts barking, it is, you know, that all the other dogs eventually join in. The influence of the company you keep. And your attitude towards moral ignorance is critical. You can't cohabitate with moral ignorance and validate moral ignorance and think you're doing right. And remember that shaitan is in fact an archenemy to you. So you want a path, you want uh, Allah's help, because you do need Allah's help with shaitan. That every time you are touched by shaitan, say Shaitan al Raji. That's an istiana. al Raji. For those who truly believe if they are touched by Shaitan, they do not insist on what's wrong. They remember, and when they remember, they become seeing. And then, I, I am but a messenger. But this is Basair, um, let me see if they, I know I'm probably going to make this one. This is insights. Basair, these are illuminations from your Lord. Basair is what illuminates your path. This is our illuminations and guidance and mercy from your Lord for those who believe. And you want to know what will help you? When the Quran is read, listen. you may attain Allah's mercy. Of course, this doesn't mean just listen to the Quran, but it means also when you read the Quran, study it. And remember your Lord, in supplication and fervent prayer in silence and in secret so you, you so it's not just in public displays <laughs> It, it, it's a figure, figure of speech, effectively meaning throughout the day. Some people, you know, they translate it as sunrise or midday and, and sundown. No, it's throughout the day. And don't be among the gaffedin, don't be among the heedless. Don't forget, in other words. And remember that final verse inna rabbika la Yeah God doesn't need your prayers and your supplications. This is all for you. If it's for God, God already has in the in the celestial realm. It's full of those who supplicate and do sujood for Allah. This is all for you. Okay. So now let's step back and just quickly so notice that we start out As the surah takes us from with every time that it's going to segue into a, a shifted theme, there's an introductory ayah. Through the moment of creation and the awareness of wrong and right with volition becomes the inevitability of material needs and material consciousness. But with also choice and volition and the the laws of materialism, i.e. the laws of causation, is the fact that what is right is not going to become miraculously victorious by itself. It will only be victorious, it will only be so if there is those who cause it to be so. God is there to assist those who assist themselves. But don't ever think that it is an automatic process that somehow will just unfold by a, a miraculous divine intervention the the law of volition that has been set in promotion through from the time of Adam and Eve has an enemy representing the wrong choices. In the same way that Allah's isma'ul husna, Allah's beautiful attributes represent the good choices. But it is you that has to make that choice. And it is you that has to invoke the law of causation Not even the prophets. Even when Allah aided them eventually by punishing those who deserved punishment. But that only meant that they got to save themselves and their followers. But no magical wand was waved and everyone believed prophet after prophet after prophet. They tried and tried and tried and only a small group of people believed. And the, the destruction of the bad is an inevitable thing. But that's not the point The point is not whether the bad will be destroyed. The point is whether the good will be successful. Evil will not prevail in the long term because of sunnah mullah In the same way that Allah allows life to exist through a meticulous balance in the environment, Allah allows principles such as justice and mercy and compassion to exist despite all the wrong decisions and all the cruelty and all the evil, but the fact that the, the, that bad acts catch up with those who commit those acts eventually, that's not the victory the victory is for goodness to prevail. And that, as we saw as, 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 as moral examples as they were, all the prophets like Nuh and Saleh and Shu'aib and so on and so forth, but ultimately despite their best efforts, Goodness did not prevail. Evil was vanquished. But they were unable to do it. For these prophets to be able to do it, they need you. Talking to the people around the prophet, they need you, people who are going to support this prophet. Now, Remember that yes, they need you, but, and this is why the story of Moses becomes so important, it means that you need to be morally vigilant and you cannot afford to be like the people of Araf. Those people who know what's right and wrong, but they don't, they, they, they just sat on the couch and waited for God's victory to come. Well, they got stuck in the same way that they were sort of vanilla, neither this or that on earth, well, in the hereafter, they're stuck. And a very important thing through the story of Moses Do you notice how the Quran completely undermines which it will do more explicitly in Surah Al-Baqarah but completely undermines in Al-A'raf the idea of a chosen people. Don't you dare think that that anyone is chosen by God to become entitled to victory. Arabs were aware that the Jews went around saying that God's chosen people. But it cuts right to the chase and tells you, you know what the problem is? The problem is they believe that God is going to forgive their sins, whatever they do. But that's that's not true. In fact, those who have that attitude, they're like apes. and Or like panting dogs. Don't be like that. And again, it's not about Jews. It is about a personality type. When you become anchored in opportunism and materialism and pursuit of your appetites, and you think you, you go around with some entitled ideology that makes you feel superior to others, well, you don't realize it, but you're even more based than cattle. There's only one way for good things to happen. And that is for people to take an affirmative moral stand and an affirmative position that aids and supports what is good and resists what's evil and establishes justice. In other words, not to be like the people of Araf. And as to you Muslims, who are about now, and this is, remember, this is before Isra and before the intensity of the persecution, who are, Allah knows what, what is going to go, come down for you, but you don't. But as to you Muslims, remember that af forgive people because the idea is not to coerce people. You, you can't coerce goodness. You're just a reminder. You, you don't control it. And your, your, your mantra is establish goodness, affirmatively, positively. And ignorance in all its form, whether ignorance in belief, moral ignorance, ethical ignorance, empirical ignorance, is a danger, so stay away from it. Stay away from it is even stronger than don't do it. Means keep your distance completely. Because that attitude, that the attitudes of entitlement and, of, that that are go hand in hand with ignorance is exactly the evil of shaitan. You know it reminds me a lot of the banality of evil. When you are tempted to be ignorant, you need to remember Allah and to resist shaitan. The final thing is about what khud there is a hadith that the Prophet, ﷺ, there are several versions of this hadith. Uh, uh, one version is that the Prophet ﷺ is asked what does in Surah Al Araf what does Khuz Al means? Uh, what does forgiveness in Surah Al Araf mean? In another version, the Prophet A.S., asks Gibril what does it mean? In both versions, the result is the same. man haramak, wa man wa man That you you give that who, in fact, cuts you off. وَتَصَلْ مَنْ قَطَعَكُ If you have a relative or a loved one that doesn't call you, doesn't visit you, you call them and you visit them. Or a friend. Watafu عَنْ مَنْ Is to forgive that who has treated you unfairly but remember al-af doesn't mean that you don't you that you fail in enjoining the good because a lot of people think that they they the mix between forgiveness is only meaningful when you are in a position to forgive if you forgive out of weakness, not out of strength, then that's cowardliness. That's not forgiveness. So, you know, when I hear, I'll give you just since I always give real life examples. When I hear uh, modern day Egyptians say things like, oh, well, you know, if the Israelis kill Palestinians, why can't the attitude be forgiveness? That, that's ridiculous. That's injustice. And it is, it is not really forgiveness. It's that uh, you're cowards. And you can't mix between the forgiveness that the Quran talks about and cowardliness. Okay, alhamdulillah. We're done with Surah Al-A'raf. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Before we, we do uh, questions, uh, Sharif reminded me that I said um that I was going to come back to 172, and I forgot. So, wa'id akhdarabbuka min bani Adam min juhurihim zuriyatuhum wa ashhadum 'ala anfusihim ala-stu bi-Rabbikum. So the, the reason I had paused one seven two two is that remember this is the transition where we leave the story of the Israelites and it's going to start talking to Benny Adam and as I said earlier Surah al araf is distinctive for the number of times that it addresses itself to Benny Adam, meaning human beings, broadly. And this is as a, as a, um, a sort of a, a, a transition, it will take us to the ultimate story or... Purported story about Abd al the the about the, the the process of procreation and um, uh, our relationship to to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala in in the very the very basic act of um, of procreating and continuing. But notice in one seventy two. That while it, it alludes to procreation, it then comes to this, this which becomes developed throughout the Quran after Surah Al Araf, uh, um, further and further. And that's the, 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 the idea of a mithaq or a a covenant a a covenant that is um, before time, if you will, between human beings and God. And Muslim theologians, you know, they, they paused at this and struggled with it a bit because the covenant in the Quranic discourse, is that a covenant taken with all human beings and in which all human beings attest or testify to Allah being their Lord. Now, we know that most of us, I mean, none of us were were created at the time of this covenant. None of us were born. So, some tried to resolve it in a very um i would say very literal way so they they uh, they they said oh well you know uh, uh, all of the cells or all of the what would become all human beings for the end of till the end of times were also at the time that Adam was created, they were part of the cellular structure of Adam somehow. And so that's how they tried to resolve the issue of the covenant. Of course, the, the majority thought, well, even even if that was so, what does it mean to, to take a covenant from a cell? I mean, it has no comprehension, it has no... But the, the covenant is allegorical. And as often, as the Quran often, um, uh, talks about, for instance, conversations that take place in the hereafter, and it says, "Your Lord said, and then they said, and Your Lord said," and of course that style, it, it get it, it is designed to get you to reflect on. It's as if telling human beings that there ought to have been, or if Allah would have uh, that, that there is it could, it's the same idea of an implied contract or an implied covenant or a social contract that is implied by the very state of affairs, by the very state of nature, if you will. Um, so that that's what I wanted to say about 172. And, but we come back to the idea of covenant in, in further sure, inshallah, in more detail, uh, so I'll, I'll stop, I'll just say that at this point. Um, okay, that's it.
0: Okay, alhamdulillah, uh, this is, um, there's, there's so much to process, it is such an incredible surah. I, it's really hard to believe that we're not even halfway through yet. You know, mm-hmm. this was number 48. And like, when you start putting together all the things that we, we are learning, I mean, it's like, gosh, how, how much more there, there must be. It's a little bit mind-blowing. Um, and I think, um, the, like, for example, um, the idea that you know, when you talked about, you referenced um, religion being the opiate of the masses. And it's so striking that this is so exactly the opposite of that. Because yeah. it's like time and time again, the messages are very clear that, you know, there's, there's motion, there's action, there's accountability that we need to be thinking, we need to, you know, it's like um, there's no sense of being neutral, there's no sense of just being like insular or where you can just sit quietly on a couch and think, you know, like, okay, I'm, I'm not doing anything, so I'm not hurting anybody, but the, the, just by, by fact of not doing anything is actually negative. Mm-hmm. Uh, by not taking a stand, so it's really fascinating. Because then, when you start thinking about just where you know how Muslims today seem to react, even like when we went for a protest um, in Los Angeles, you know, or the protests we've gone to, and how few people show up, um, and you know, it just it, it's just so striking, and um, so it, it just underscores. I mean, you just feel sort of like less and less comfortable with the idea of, like, relaxing and being a couch potato. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> so we am going to, to ask you some questions about, like, how, you know, it's like redefining um, how you spend your free time, but anyway, <laughs> just to comment on that. Who would like to kick off with questions? Okay, come on, Cheyenne.
2: Again, I think my question is for the purposes of the record and this sort of thing, to help uh, illuminate more uh, on the way that you think. Uh, specifically when it comes to scholars and ulama and imams and this sort of thing, um, when reading, I, I come across stuff like, let's say, like Alama Tabatabai was complaining to Alama Khani saying, go and tell Mutahari to leave his political aspirations and mm-hmm. activism behind and to focus on writing like a chef or something on my work and let's focus on the our, our task at hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and clearly somebody like Talatawai is well acquainted with finding the moral message, et etc. et cetera. Et cetera. Um, is, is there a gray area here? Was there a gray area before that there isn't now? Uh, is this a, you know, what, what is one to think of this and how do you carry forward in terms of uh, at this point in time uh, is, there, is there a level of political pragmatism that fits within the surah that doesn't lead you into the a'raf is there something to keep in mind in terms of scholars who um, are trying their best to, I don't want to say toe the line, but, but in essence are trying to preserve what they have in terms of their students and the tradition uh, without finding themselves in, in, in an immediate rut or a prison, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm.
1: So. Yeah. Uh, can you hear a question? Uh, I mean, the, the question, I, I think, is, um, you know, it, it, it is... Uh, about okay the even if we even if we uh, okay so we understand that you have to have a an affirmative stand um, but um, sometimes an affirmative stand can lead to disastrous consequences and personally I mean it could lead to, to um, uh, 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 destruction of the self, uh, imprisonment, torture. Uh, sometimes, um, even scholars, the point that Cheyenne was referring to that um, wanted Alama Mutahari to be less politically active, to focus more on issues of scholarship and so on. And, and And basically it's how how do you navigate these these uh, really difficult questions? and And the the red bright there's the, the sort of a, a, a general bright red rule, and that is my position, I can avoid putting myself in danger uh you know w- w- you have the option of saying a word of truth before an unjust ruler and being tortured or killed and your reward is with Allah but not everyone is able to do that and or or sometimes it, it is not wise to do to do that so if you, there's more good you can do uh so for instance to teach uh, a lot of students um by not sacrificing yourself. Um, so the the red bright lines is that whatever position you can take cannot lead to the dilution of what's right and wrong. So, it, it, you, you you know, uh, for instance, when wanted Mutahari to be less politically involved, it is because Tubtahari thought that the political activism of, under the the totality of circumstances um, are far less valuable than what mu, the knowledge that Mutahari can convey to students and that to train a a you know a class of Mutahari quality students in the long run is more beneficial than the political positions that Mutahari would take and the others could take. The, the problem is, is when you confront the circumstances where you don't have people that would take Mutahari's positions. And so right and wrong itself start becoming in danger mm. of disappearing. Um, so here's the thing. The, the rule, the, the presumptive rule is you always have an obligation to speak or act. It's like when, when the Prophet says, uh, you know, that if you see something wrong, you have to change it. That's a presumptive rule, that you have to change it. And presumptively, you have to change it with your own hands, with your own actions. Okay, but if you can't. But here's the thing, is that when you think I can't, you better do your due diligence because then that means the presumption is you have an obligation. You're going to meet Allah with that obligation. Allah is going to say, have you discharged your obligation? No, I haven't discharged my obligation. What what are your reasons? Well, here are my reasons. If you turn out that that in your reasoning, you were negligent or you were coward, because Allah knows what your motives are, you can't, you know, or that you were cowardly, or that you were apathetic, or that you were uh, just didn't care about who suffered, or that you cared more about being rich and living comfortably, you're going to be held be hold, be hold to account for that. So, yes, there are many situations where mm-hmm it is, you know, we can decide, well, if I speak, I'm gonna be arrested and destroyed immediately, but if I avoid the confrontation with the state, um, I can probably perhaps do more good, but as long as that doesn't, you don't contribute to the injustice committed against another person, so you, you can't, for instance, help the state kill someone or torture someone Uh, and say, well, you know, I I couldn't help it. You know, like the the mufti of Egypt who signs off on executions by the state that everyone knows are unjust. You can't do that. Um, Two, that you better interrogate yourself about your real motives, because Allah is going to interrogate you. And B, you better exercise your due diligence. Remember that the lesson that is always communicated to us is that those who those who live in justice is because enough people work for that justice and those who don't it's because not enough people work for that justice and within that principle so it can never be well Allah has not just will Allah just didn't hasn't willed it yet no it, it Allah has a will because you haven't done the job. Um, the nature of of wrongdoing is is that just, um, sometimes, yeah, you know, um, uh, but, you know, it, it is, we have the model of Imam al-Hussein who, stood up to what's wrong and martyred himself. And we have the model of Imam al-Hassan who became a teacher, an educator. And the thing is now who who did more good? I think it's really, I mean, Imam al-Hassan inspired every person who has ever stood against injustice in Islamic history. Imam al-Hassan educated people like Ja'far al-Saleh. But even, remember, even even Imam al-Hassan probably died poisoned. Uh, uh, You know, um, because he was an honest and truthful teacher. Because truthful teaching, a truthful teacher, although they might avoid an immediate showdown they are more threatening to power than anything else Um, so you know there's a huge difference between a truthful teacher and an untruthful teacher Mm
0: -hmm. who's next
3: Uh, they're very brief ones. Um, would I be able to ask more than one?
0: When you go ahead and answer or ask
3: both and then okay. it. Um so just verse one fifty five fifty-five, sufaha, is that referring to um, the ones who worshipped the calf or the ones who stood by and did nothing? And then my other question was a surah like Al-A'raf, is it revealed all at once or piecemeal and like over how long period of time? Because when you're dating it, you treat it as uh, one block or one unit. And then lastly, verse 129, uh, my question here was is that referring to seeing their behavior after they have become khulafa or the behavior that determine whether or not they will become khulafa uh-huh. okay
1: so I'll try to remember. So verse 155 first. Okay, um, okay so verse 155, the the reference to Sufaha, um, most commentators, the, the question is, the, the word Sufaha, which means uh, the those who are misguided or those who... Um, the, the the wrongful ones um so if you remember in 155 musa alayhi salatu salam says to allah as they are tested with al- Rashfah, a Rashfa allah y- uh-uh. are you going to destroy us by what those who are were misguided among us did? and uh, interestingly most commentators say that Sufa here Re- refers to the 70 naqibs the 70 representatives and if that's the case then they're the apathetic ones the the ones who stood by and did nothing B- why because um, um, when Musa alayhi salam, comes back and they had worshipped the calf um, the the expatiation that is that uh, the, when they said well you know what is our repentance and the repentance is um, to kill themselves and in the in the Bible it says that most of them killed themselves although the Quran doesn't say that um, and I doubt that that's what happened but that it was, anyway. We'll get to that eventually. This whole, um, but the, um, in at least in the Islamic tradition, the repentance took place, and the matter was forgiven before the seventy representatives were selected and they had to headed to the mount mount. But none of the seventy were among those who had actually worshipped the heifer. Um anyway, yeah. So but so the majority say the sufahat refers to the the um the people who did nothing. Um the the second was what was it revealed all at once or over time? Oh, yeah. The, the um we don't there are some who said that a few of the verses um uh, uh, in Surah and Araf were 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 revealed in Medina um but. That's based on nothing but speculation, because they reasoned that um, Jews really didn't become a point of interest for Muslims till Muslims went to Medina. And they reasoned that, you know, it seems like Araf is just talking about Jews but uh, that's myopic because yes it it's true that there weren't that many Jews in, in Mecca um, but from the beginning Islam situates itself as a message to the followers of Ibrahim as a message to the followers of Jesus the followers of Musa Moses the, the followers of all humanity so um, I I the the now, how were these soar, these long sore, were they revealed in one sitting or, you know, one after another over, let's say, the course of a few days? The answer is we don't know. Um, we really don't know. But I don't think really it matters because it's not like you know, the Araf would start being re- revealed and then we have a few verses from Al-Mulk and then we have a few verses from Zuhrof and then we go back to the Araf. It's not like that. It was the revelation of the Araf and um, you know, if I was living at the time and I knew that an Araf would be revealing, I, 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 was being revealed, I, I would literally like be on, on my seat's edge mm-hmm. for Okay, what's going to come next? Um, my my guess though, I have, I don't know, my I have a very strong suspicion that if not the entire surah in one full sitting, it was in very, very close proximity to, like, it, it was because we don't get a lot of narratives that that would make us believe that there were any time gaps. Um, and then there was, the last one was well. It was um, about verse 129, but I don't actually remember the question. Uh, Sorry. In- I, I, I'll, I'll recognize it. Okay. Right. Oh, yes, yeah. No, the, most said, is that after they would um, after their adu is vanquished and they become mustakhlafeen in, ard then Allah would see what they would do and this goes back as we'll see in, later on in the Quran to the uh, challenging of the idea of the chosen, chosen people all istikhlaf is to see what people will do with their there is no, in, there are no entitlements
4: telling them during break that I, I think this is one of the most powerful ones and seriously sincerely thank you because I know how much preparation goes into these and they're all they're all extremely powerful I spent my whole life not re- understanding the Quran and not realizing that I didn't understand the Quran until this year began until this project began um, so Seriously, thank you. And um, my question, and I just wanted to make it into one question because I have a bunch, but the first session in verse 26 when we got to talking about Adam and Eve realizing their nakedness, my question was about whether nakedness could be interpreted as something other than just realizing their their physical nakedness or becoming self-aware because i i started to think of it as the sense of they their self was naked i mean it's you know i feel like my life is is filled with this pursuit of feeling vulnerable and trying to adorn myself with different identities and that can include materialism that can include accolades that can include what I attached the concept of safety and security to. And then once we got, in this session, to Yal- Yalha, the, the question kind of formed as, as one that those... I'm, I'm wondering if those two concepts kind of go hand in hand, because to me, in our society, if you were to tell majority of people about appetites, they would say, oh, I don't live my life chasing appetites. Mm. What they live their life doing In their mind Their narrative is I'm trying to be safe I'm trying to be secure I'm trying to be okay I just want to make sure I have enough But no one's actually Threatened by starvation No one's threatened By being clothesless Or, or homeless mm. it, It's This this Our idea of Around what we need Is totally skewed So is, mm. is there a basis For looking at Yalhath And also the, the, the idiom of The ape um, In that light of it being attached to security and how human beings need to be secure, and is there basis for looking at Adam and Eve's nakedness and our own nakedness in that light?
1: Yeah, um, you, the well, okay, so you, first about the nakedness of Adam and Eve, you hit it right on the nail uh, in terms, especially in Sufi-esque tafasir. Um, uh um, the sufi understand the reference to uh they becoming aware of the, the nakedness of their private part completely as a uh they say yeah the physical nakedness is is, is part of it but that's not what is the main point behind it. That the, 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 the main point is their the, their anxieties, their insecurities, the 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 full heartedness of a lot of their aspirations, the fact that they aspired to eat something that would make them eternal. So and and it, it's a foolish aspiration because how is a food going to make them eternal if God doesn't want them to be eternal? So they say that the nakedness is actually the, the, the way that human beings' passions um, are often illogical. And they arise from what, spiritual maladies. Um, and there's, there's, a, I mean, and especially that image, by the way, is, um, it features in Sufi poetry a lot, that, that image of, that they start taking, um, uh, tree leaves or, uh, leaves from trees and covering their bodies. But in Sufi poetry, it's 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 never about like covering the, covering the physical body. It's always it, it is it is the the uh, foolishness of human beings trying to um, satiate their spiritual longing and going all the wrong ways. Either you know. Um, In Sufi poetry, especially like, you know, drinking alcohol or sex um, or gorging yourself on food, all of that is seen as basically trying to self-medicate for your spiritual illnesses. And so that's the... um, The other thing is about Yeleth, this is actually a really um, interesting point. Because it, it, the those who are d- described as have become like living like apes, just responding to their needs, or responding to their pa- their, their appetites, or like the, the the allegory of the panting dog. Um, it is. Um, What's interesting is that that village that's, that broke the Sabbath, um, they, the logic that, although that the the fished to the heart's content, according to, these are all like in, in various traditions that say that this was a, a well-off village, but the, lo- the reasoning as to why they broke the law of the Sabbath is, well, you know, it, If we don't fish enough, we can't feed our family. So when you mentioned this point, it's very interesting because it's actually, it's something that human beings rarely admit to themselves, um, oh, I just want excess because I love having excess. The logic that human beings, and especially, by the way, in in pre-modernity, where you didn't have banks, you didn't have so people felt very insecure, and it, it, you made a lot of money because if today you don't know what tomorrow's what tomorrow you'll bring, you don't know if a single robbery will wipe out your entire savings because you don't have banks and you don't have you know our modern. So, although. That insecurity existed, it still is not an excuse. Um, And people would often think, well, uh, I need to make people you would normally have a lot of children. I mean, having 10, 15 children was not unusual. So, and the idea was, I need to make, you know, keep making money so I can provide for all of them. So, and again, you, you you read the most on these things either in books like here Alumadin or um, you know the, the works by Sharani or Sufi esk tafsir that that talk about um, what what human beings objectively need to survive on is quite minimal and easily achievable in most situations. But that, that's not what human beings are really talking about. It's not yet, And it's not even Hajj yet. You know, necessities and needs. It is is—is various levels of security about not the end of the day or not just tomorrow, not a week. You know, then we get into a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, 10 years from now. 20 years from now, what is enough to make you secure? How much do you need? And ultimately, the, 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 the I forgot, they, they had a very nice expression to, something, an expression that means like, um, the, the, like the grand fallacy, but what was it in the, Arabic? The idea that eventually wealthy people come to no longer think of 10 years from now, or they they really think in terms of my lifetime. I need enough to make me safe for my lifetime. Mm -hmm. Which in pre-modern age, you know, before retirement funds and things like that, I wonder like a lot of the, the people who wrote these books, if they came into our modern age and saw what we had, what they would think they had far less, and they still, you know,
0: okay. Just as a comment um, related to that, on the idea of nakedness, it reminds me of something you spoke to in another talk about the gap between how we perceive ourselves and the truth of how Allah knows us, the masks that people wear, false self versus true self, um, for example, as spoken about with narcissism, narcissism and their varying degrees of this might be akin to the dawning of leaves to cover nakedness.
1: That's a really good point.
0: Thought-provoking sure. Who said that? Elaine.
1: Oh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> no, um, Yeah, that's a really good point.
0: Anybody else have questions here?
4: Sorry, I might have dismissed this, so just for clarification, when you talked about verse 167 and 168, uh, specifically on, you know, you were describing how defeated people will uh, disperse when civilization crumbles um, in yeah. regards to the Jews and diaspora, and then you followed that with discussing how this is one of the lessons from the Sura, that God's mercy is that we can even be scattered in, in diaspora. Um, I just want to make sure I heard that correctly, and then um, more so just in what ways that should that be seen as a mercy that even after, like these civilizations were crumbled, there's still an opportunity um, for these individuals. Or oh, did I, 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 misunderstand I feel, yeah, that? I
1: think there's a bit of a misunderstanding. I when I talked about God's mercy, it's not the diaspora is God's mercy, but mm-hmm. that um, I was saying that specifically about talking about the the the. the, the specifically about um, um, the Qur'an talking about the Israelites, is that even when the Qur'an talks about, we, it it, it, I, I said, that there are, pe- there are people that are of, of the past, like the people of Lot, Lut, uh, people of Ad, people of Samud, and then the Qur'an tells us they were destroyed and it's over. But if the Qur'an talks about an ongoing people, People like Christians or Jews or, you know, it, the Quran it, it always, when it, when it mentions that there was, they, they were punished in some way, it is never like God damn them and it's over with. It, there will always be, yes, they're punished, but if they do good, they'll be fine. In other words, there's always a positive hope um and i was saying that this is always part of the sophisticated qualifiers of the quran that regardless of the level of loss there's there's always the the mercy of god's forgiveness available to you the point i was making i think that it just got the two points got lapsed. i was making sort of a side comment that um dispersion is often an outcome of political defeat um not just for the Israelites but for every nation that has ever been defeated is that people um they 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 I mean look at look at um um what happened to after the the Soviet Union crumbled um look at the way Russians have, gone everywhere, or Ukrainians are everywhere. Um, look at everyone's proud civilization that uh, the population, because of course, p- part of the defeat is that economic systems crumble and they're no longer able to support their local populations. Um, and that, that was a separate point that I was sort of just making. It's more of a socio-historical point than a theological point. Okay. Sorry. Thank you.
0: Okay, great. Uh, okay. Uh, Dr. Khaled, regarding um, the enjoining the good and forbidding the evil, I've usually observed it as a justification to be vocal about how others around you sin but after hearing more and more of your tips here, I'm starting to understand that it has more to do with speaking out against injustices towards yourself and others. Is this accurate? And if not, what are your thoughts? No,
1: it um, is really... Um, it's really the heart of the matter, is that your, your first gaze has to be inwards. Your second gaze has to be inwards. Your third gaze has to be inwards. And... Uh, but, but self-reform should never be an excuse to tolerating injustice against others. It, it just, <clears throat> it means that um, if you don't have an inward gaze to self, to reclaim the self, to interrogate the self, to discipline the self uh, that it becomes very easy for enjoining the good and forbidding what is not good to become an ego trip. It becomes a way of bossing other human beings. Um, This this is why, I mean, I always go back to like when I, I, it it took me many years to, to fully understand it. When I would always uh, ask, you know, okay, so, uh, you know, I, you would always go to some sheikh or, you know, um, uh, when you're very young, you have, like, hopes, like, uh, you know, like dreams about changing the world, right? And, you know, I want to do this, I want to save the world, and... It used to when I was much younger, I, I used to used to drive me crazy because they would always say, "Oh, you know they basically say, "That's nice. Okay, go work on your humility." And you know what a, what a type of response is that? It's like, you know you want to change the world." And they tell you, like go take a cold shower effectively, you know um, go work on your humility but then it, it it as you get older and you get your horizons expand you you really understand why is that so many people started out wanting to change the world and instead ended up corrupting the world uh, you know so many the, the, what is the past to hell is paved with good intentions mm. um, it, the quality of, of of humility, and the quality of um, it, it is it is um, to to be able to truly listen to the narrative of those who have suffered injustice, rather than what you think their narrative ought to be, mm-hmm. takes such an uh, a remarkable level of humility. To be to learn to be a good listener. I mean, you know, one of the reasons that there's so many divorces in our modern age is that people have stopped learning, have stopped. Uh, people don't know how to be good listeners anymore, so that's why so many relationships fail. And, you know, the most common thing you you hear in in relationships. Failures, you don't understand me, and you know you people start feeling that they talk and they can't they can't understand each other, and it's because the art of listening listening is an art, and it is a moral state, and uh, you know in the age of texting where everyone is texting their brains out. <laughs> I don't know how they can maintain the art of listening if they're constantly texting. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that's just a sidebar. I don't text. Don't text me. I don't text anyone.
0: <laughs> okay, I think we have time for one last question. Um, this is from Huda, so I'm going to put them together. She had two questions. Um salamu alaykum. Thank you for clarifying so much of Surah al-Araf. I'm always very grateful for these halakas. In your opinion, are the people who mislead others just as culpable as the people who are misled? And also, to what extent can we apply the lessons from Surah al-Araf and the story of Musa and his followers to our lives? People often don't want to hear anyone tell them to believe or act just justly um, and don't want to receive any
1: advice. Yeah. Um, okay, so the, fir- the first part... Um, uh, uh, I blanked out. Oh,
0: it's about um, are the people who mislead others. Oh, mislead. Just as culpable as the people who are misled.
1: Um, yes, in, in, I mean, of course. Keep in mind always, Allah is capable of something we are not capable of, and that is absolute justice. Um, but remember that the Quran often quite often presents us the allegory of those who've been misled um, confronting those who misled them and say, Allah punished them more because they misled us. And so much of the Qur'an, the response comes is, both of you deserve punishment. Now, is this punishment going to be exactly the same? Well, I mean, you know, think about it. can you be? Can you imagine being like one of those presidents of modern day countries, who, who the presidents who jail thousands of people and torture thousands of people and kill thousands of people? You know, the, our notions of justice makes us believe that these people are going to have an amount of punishment that are difficult to imagine. But. Um, uh, often those who obey orders or who are are persuaded to do the wrong are, are, are equally culpable. I mean, quite often, not in every situation, but quite often. You know, I, I would assume that Eichmann is going to be punished in, in hell far more than the soldiers he ordered to exterminate people, but there have been so many situations where the soldiers will be punished as much as the officers who exterminate people and you know the same was the genocide in for muslims in, in china for instance um, um, what's really scary is to to think of uh, what what will allah's justice mean for all those who were complicit in the genocide of Muslims in China, um, by their silence or by not taking an affirmative stand. Um, the second question: uh, um,
0: What to, to what extent can we apply the lessons from? Surah oh yeah,
1: the the about mm-hmm. the yeah, it's true. I mean, listen, there, there, people do resist. They don't want to be told um, what's wrong or right. And um, the, you you cannot, it's the same way that the, the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Prophet, ﷺ that listen, you know, there are people that you talk to and they don't hear you. And they look at you and they don't see you meaning that as long as you first look inward and you humble yourself, and if you see something wrong, like for instance, um, you know, you see people that you know should know better at drinking or uh, one of the biggest things is it, it really dismays me in modern Islam, that people will see husbands doing all types of wrong things or wives doing all types of wrong things and 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 not say a word uh, no i mean if i if some if i know if i have a friend and or a student and i see that they're going to do something wrong like they're going to that's going to endanger their family i'll tell them now you're absolutely right most of the time people respond by basically saying mind your own business as long as I've done my best efforts then I turn away from the jahidi and but I have I've discharged my obligation so I mean I've had many situations in real life where um, you see things are really wrong and and the way I've you know, it depends on the circumstances. But, you know, I, I've terminated a lot of friendships because I couldn't approve... I, I would tell people, you know, okay, so if you're going to do that, I'm sorry, but we can't be... continue you be friends. That was my form of adult. Um, at, at least I'm hoping that by seeing that it someone takes a moral stand, that that will... Resonate in their life at some point in their life even if they don't listen to you today maybe you know Ten years from now when that woman they ran off with and cheated on their wife with, you know betrays them with some other man or Steals their money and whatever maybe What your words that you said ten years ago will ring in their head and go and that has happened a few times, you know um you know not not as often as I would like but it has happened.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, alhamdulillah. Thank you again for everything. It was incredible, incredible halakha And um, it's hard to believe that now we'll meet again in a few days yeah. with a new surah, inshallah, inshallah
1: this face so. pa- is insane <laughs> it's um, insane, but alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. but, but at, at least I'm unloading the Quran and and you know um, just help help us get us get it get it get it out Donate. Donate. yes <laughs>
0: <laughs> and join us in the cause uh, so um, everybody have a wonderful rest of the week and inshallah we will see you on Saturday if